This is episode number 15 with internationally renowned mime, Bill Bowers. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McCandrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Welcome to the Ships Podcast today, everyone. Our guest today is Bill Bowers, hailed by critics as one of the most accomplished and renowned mimes of his generation. Bill Bowers currently performs and teaches the art of physical storytelling throughout the world. His methods and exploration of universal truths transcend the spoken word to educate and touch audience in countries as varied as Poland, the Netherlands, China, Thailand, Japan, Macedonia, Romania, Italy, Norway, Germany, and Austria. It's a lot of countries. An award-winning actor, Bowers has also performed in all 50 states of the United States and Puerto Rico, appearing on the stages of Broadway, the Kennedy Center, the White House, Steppenwolf, La Mama, Ensemble Studio Theater, Radio City Music Hall, and the New York International Fringe Festival. His Broadway credits include Zazu in The Lion King and Leggett in The Scarlet Pimpernel. He has also portrayed the great silent clowns, including Charlie Chaplin, Perot, and Petruchka. As a passionate student and educator, Bowers studied with the legendary Marcel Marceau and currently serves on the faculties of New York University, Stella Adler Conservatory, and the William Esper Studios. He has recently served as a visiting professor at Williams College, Ohio University, and University of Wyoming. He holds an MFA from Rutgers University's Mason Gross School of the Arts and an honorary PhD from Rocky Mountain College. Guys, this is an amazing episode that you won't want to miss. I'm very excited that you're all tuning in. Bill and I talk a lot of great things in this episode. He talks about how honesty is appealing, how silence can be very powerful, and how we are able to connect with people who may have varying opinions from our own. We talk about how we all have a common language and we must be receivers of information instead of people who are going to be reactors. So this is a really great episode. I really hope you enjoy it all. So without further ado, internationally renowned mime, Bill Bowers. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Today's guest is Bill Bowers. Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to dive in. You have a really unique performing experience that uh, I feel like is super important today. And I'm really excited to dive in and, and share your experience with our listeners. Great. So I'm wondering if you could just start out by telling us a little bit about your background, maybe where are you from, and how did you end up on this path that you're pursuing today? Well, um, 
I guess I should start by saying that I am a mime. And uh, generally, when people find that out, they the first question is why? Why? Why would you be? Why would you become a mime? <laughs> and I attribute it to being from Montana. Uh, not that Montana is the center of mime, but Montana is this big, quiet place. Uh, one of those big rectangle states way out west. And um, I grew up in a little town in Montana. My mom's family actually homesteaded out to Montana in the 18, late 1860s. So my heritage is very Montanan. So I'm from this big, quiet place, and I'm from a big, quiet Western family. Uh, so very early on in my life, silence was kind of front and center for me. And I started paying attention to that. Um, and I think most uh, uh, importantly, I'm, I'm a gay man and I was a gay boy growing up in a little Western town in the 60s before there was any conversation to be had. So uh, very early on in my life, I started to acknowledge all the different levels of silence in my life that were affecting my life. And when I learned there was an art form about silence, I just went right toward it. So that kind of set me on my path at a pretty young age as a, by a teenager, I had discovered what mime was and I, I didn't know that I could make a living doing it, but I knew that I was in love with the art form and I just started teaching myself what I thought it was. And what was it specifically about mime that, that drew your attention? Was it that it was a silent art form or was it something in addition to that? No, I think the silence was a big part of it. And for me, I was, um, uh, a shy, uh, pretty reserved young person and, uh, kind of terrified of be <laughs> getting beat up. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of expressing myself in another way in, in not having to use words was very interesting to me. And I had a, I think I had kind of a natural, um, affinity to it. And so it, I got encouraged very early on to, um, to be a mime too. So I started teaching myself more and more things and started performing and teaching workshops. And it just became, oddly enough, it became my voice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with it being your voice, I assume you mean, uh, through physicality. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm wondering if you could elaborate that on that a little bit more, because I, I feel like so many people, obviously, when they think of voice, they think of like the actual voice. Yeah. So wh what do you mean with regards to finding your voice um, and expressing that physically? Well, I think as an artist, more and more, I'm, you know, um, discovering that it's uh, one of the jobs of an artist. One of the gifts we get as artists is to be able to um, have something to say and a platform to say it. On. Uh, and for me, I found that taking words away was, a, um, for me, a more honest, expressive um, vehicle for me. So uh, I, I feel like I'm able to uh, create work that is uh, unique and honest to what I want to say about the world. And to share what I want to share about my own life. Uh, just uh, for me, it is the, the clearest, most honest language is to take words away and, and work in, uh, I, I'm a narrative storyteller for the most part, but it's, um, it takes this shape in space rather than in words. 
And do you think, you know, you, you've found so many unique qualities, I guess, in the art form, but then also within yourself because of the lack of words? Because oftentimes you may hear a lot of artists or even entrepreneurs talk about how their lack of resources really allows them to expand and get really creative. So do you think it was a very similar scenario, you know, in your work pursuing mime or, or, you know, pursuing performing? Yeah. Except that I have to say for me, as soon as I really kind of embraced uh, being a mime and thinking about storytelling in mime, if for me, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a restriction because I wasn't using words. It was actually an opening up in a lot of ways. It just, for me, it became a much freer form of expression. So you were working as a mime then, I, I guess, were you still in Montana or at, at what part did you kind of expand from, from living out in Montana? Uh, at what point did I expand? Uh, well, I, I started being a mime as a teenager in high school and I had a, 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 a drama teacher who knew a little bit about mime. And so he taught me what he knew. And uh, we started a mime company in my high school. So I really was uh, doing a lot of it as a teenager. And then I went to college and uh, I really supported myself for quite a number of years, teaching mime and performing mime. It was in the late seventies, early eighties. And mime was kind of, uh, a thing more than it is today. It was, uh, I could, I, I could get work, you know, for the opening of a business or teaching workshops or that kind of thing. So it was a way for me to, uh, partially make a living. And that is how I taught myself how to be a mime was by doing it and by trying to teach other people. So it was always kind of a, a support, a survival job <clears throat> and a sidecar to studying acting, which is what I was studying in college and also then on in graduate school. So I moved on uh, from Montana to go to graduate school at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And uh, and the, during that whole time at Rutgers, I was also working as a mime uh, on the weekends and when I wasn't in a play. So it was this, uh, it was my survival job in so many ways and also a really uh, creative outlet for me to just make my own work. And how important would you say was that at that time, or or even just in a career as an artist, the importance of making your own work? Well, I didn't know how important it was then. Now I realize that it really was shaping who I wanted to become as as a theater maker. I had this kind of great opportunity to be making my own work. Uh, And now, now that's almost exclusively what I do is create my own uh, plays and and uh, devise group pieces with other artists. So it was really my training ground for how to just generate my own ideas. Awesome. Yeah, it really is inspiring just all, all the work that, that you've done and that you've created. And, and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. But uh, I also wanted to ask you about your experience in studying with Marcel Marceau. Like, how how did that opportunity present itself? And what did you learn about yourself while training with him? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's interesting. When I grew up, I don't know what your experience was, but when I was young, the reason I knew about mime really was because of this one man, Marcel Marceau. He's really the reason uh, 
any of us have careers as mimes. He was just so influential. And, you know, not only was he a genius and had an incredibly long career, he, he lived till he was 84 and he was performing right up till the end of his life. Um, but he also had great timing because at the time that he rose to, uh, to acclaim was also right when television was taking off. And so he was one of the first performers that was featured on a lot of early TV broadcasts. And so not only his live performances, but television took him all over the world. And uh, one of my first memories is really seeing Marcel Marceau on a TV show. And I, I basically thought he was a Martian. I didn't understand what, what it, <laughs> he was. Like he had white face and a white costume and had these kind of exaggerated moves. But I remember being fascinated by it. And it really planted a seed early on for me. Um, uh, so I had seen him perform the first time was, uh, in Montana. My mom actually bought me a ticket to see Marcel Marceau. He was playing in Montana for one night and she bought me a ticket and put me on a bus and I rode the bus 800 miles round trip to see this guy. And it was, wow, that's it, it amazing. Was, it was completely life-changing. I remember watching him and just thinking that is what I want to do. And so that really was informing for me. Uh, I then in the course of my early life as an actor, I saw him perform probably 20 or so times when he played on Broadway in the early 1980s. I went and I went to one show. I didn't have any money. So I went to one show and then I hid in the bathroom for the whole break so I could sneak into the evening show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just loved him. So uh, I had worked a lot as an actor. I was doing The Lion King on Broadway, an audition that I got because of having a background and an affinity to mime. So mime had really been a part of a lot of the kinds of jobs I got as an actor. And I was in The Lion King and I got injured. Uh, I was playing Zazu and manipulating this puppet eight shows a week. And I damaged the tendons in my hands. So I ended up um, out of the show and in the hospital recovering some tendon injuries. And uh, late at night, I was watching TV and a story came on the news about the world's most famous mime, Marcel Marceau, was embarking on his 80th birthday world tour. Wow. And I, I just, it was, for me, it was a light bulb moment. I just thought, oh my gosh, I need to study with this guy. And I contacted him over the next couple of days and I interviewed with him and, uh, I left the Lion King and I went out on the road to follow Marcel Marceau and study with him, which I would do on and off for the next three years. And then the year after that, he died. So I was so, uh, I'm so grateful that I listened to this voice inside myself. Like, this is the time, this is the opportunity, you should take it. And working with him was so many things. It's, um, I mean, it was incredibly inspiring. It was someone I had, you know, watched my whole life and I was suddenly in a room, suddenly in a room with him every day. And that was almost too big to hold on to, you know, in terms of experience. But the other thing that was interesting about it is I had very early on in my life kind of cast Marcel Marceau as my loving mime father. <laughs> <laughs> and I had uh, I had a very hard experience because that's not who he was as a person. He was he was many things. He was very famous. He was very French. He was very old, uh, and he uh, 
he wasn't particularly nurturing as a teacher. And that was um, that was a bitter pill to swallow for me because he he just wasn't he didn't he didn't uh, add up to my expectation of him, which is there's no reason he should. But for me, it was a huge lesson about, you know, meeting your idols and uh, also not not holding to some holding someone to an expectation that they they don't even know about. So it was it was a huge emotional experience and an even bigger professional artistic experience for me. And how do you feel that you developed as a mime, as a performer, or even as a person after working with him? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Well, first of all, studying with him is is rigorous. You work with his assistants for, I think, five hours every day and learn uh, a technique called the decrew. It's based on the the work of Etienne decrew, and it's very physical, it's very demanding. Uh, so you learn that whole vocabulary, or parts of it anyway. And then Marceau comes in for the afternoon and you work with him for hours. I mean, this is a man in his 80s and he would teach a day and then do shows at night. It was That's just incredible. Um, but I learned, I think my technique got so much stronger just working with him. And the main, the main uh, gift that I think Marcel Marceau gave is that he, I think he truly believed that he didn't want to make another Marcel Marceau. He wasn't interested in you copying him. He, he wanted those of us studying with him to really find our own voice in the form of pantomime. And I feel like that is what the gift was for me. I was able to take the language of classical pantomime and a lot of the stylistic qualities of Marcel Marceau and then use them as uh, a tool into creating my own type of theater. So it was, uh, that's the main gift. The other thing that Marcel Marceau talked about a lot is that, um, he would talk about the fact that, well, I'm going to do a bad French accent now, but he would say, <laughs> people say Marceau is a genius. I say, no, the genius is where Marceau and the audience meet. And uh, for me, what that meant is the space between the performer and the audience is this kind of magical, uh, imaginary space where kind of anything can happen, but it's collaborative. It takes an audience helping the performer to make it happen. And that is uh, really key to how I want to be as a performer. Yeah, I love that. It really emphasizes this connection with with the audience, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And so it's very obvious, obviously, through our discussion and through all the work that you've been doing that mime pantomime it's very central to the work you do so I, i'm just curious as to uh why in your opinion do you believe this artistic medium is very important today yeah well one of the first reasons is that there's very little of it to see particularly in our country there's just so few people who perform pantomime that that was another thing Marcel really um, urged us to do as his students was to pass it on because just as an art form, it's 
it's imaginary, it's temporal. So if you don't perform it, if you don't teach it body to body, it could, it could honestly disappear. So that's um, really part of what my mission has been for these past 20 or so years is to travel. And for our listeners who might not know or understand the difference, can you just briefly explain the difference between mime and pantomime? Oh, yeah. Now there's varying theories about this, but I'll tell you what I think. Pantomime is what most of us are familiar with. Pantomime is silent storytelling using uh, uh, illusion, creating objects and environments in an imaginary world. So it is, for the most part, narrative storytelling. And rather than words and real things like props and sets, you create them creating illusion. So it's a silent storytelling, creating imaginary objects. Mime, on the other hand, is kind of a larger art form in the sense that I think mime is more than anything. Mime is just the fact that we are physical communicators just by nature, that you cannot not say something with your body. You're always hmm. communicating something. So mime for me is the investigation of sh the shape of our bodies in space, what shape and space can be communicating at any given time. It doesn't have to be a narrative story. It doesn't have to be pretend objects. It doesn't have to be a character. It could be simply imagistic or uh, uh, gestural. So uh, in a nutshell, I think pantomime is concrete storytelling and mime is abstraction. Gotcha. Yeah. And so to go back to the previous question, then why are these art forms so important today? Yeah. Well, like I was saying that there's not a lot of opportunity in the U.S. to see mime. Uh, you know, here we are in New York City and I know basically one other mime in New York City. And he works uh, a lot in Poland because he has a lot of work there. Uh, there is a new mime company called the Broken Box Mime Theater, which I'm just going to give a shout out to because I think they're fantastic. They're a very new company, just a, maybe three or four years old, and they do classical white face pantomime. And I'm so delighted that they're doing it. Um, so for me, it's really passing on the art form is uh, just to keep it alive. And also, I think my work is kind of a testament to that you can take uh, you can take a, a, an art form, a classical art form and expand on it or uh, 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 use it in new ways, look at kind of redefining what mime can be. So I, in my work, I combine narrative storytelling and illusion with uh, the spoken word. <clears throat> and I use a lot of abstraction, a lot of sound tracking. And I like the idea of uh, juxtaposing ideas to each other and making a blend of a number of different ways to communicate ideas and um, story. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And I'm always just amazed at seeing performances where there's very little to no words being spoken yeah. and just how engaging it can still, it, it it's really just as engaging, maybe even sometimes more engaging than, than seeing a, you know, your standard play or, yeah. or musical that has um, spoken word or, or, or singing. It, it really is incredible. I think, and that goes back to this idea that Marceau talked about, the space between us. It's that 
I feel like an audience, if you offer them the chance, they want to participate. So in physical theater, the audience is part of making that experience happen there. There's a, a level of commitment. It's almost like a contract gets signed between the audience and the, the performers in physical theater. And you are invested in making the images happen and making the story move forward. I'm really curious. So something that I talk with a lot about um, our guests here on the ship's podcast is specifically about building and cultivating uh, meaningful relationships, specifically in an age where we are uh, very consumed by our devices and spend so much of our time on social media and on the internet. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of taking time for silence or taking time for ourselves in this age where we're very hyper-connected online. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know, some review a few years ago uh, for one of my shows said that my work is the antidote to, um, I think they said the antidote to the cell phone. <laughs> I, I took that as a compliment. Um, yeah, I think, you know, silence is something that is harder and harder to find in the world. But if you think about places of silence, you know, churches and temples and libraries and, um, you know, out in nature, they're places of contemplation. And if you allow that silence around you for any amount of time, chances are you will feel something, you know, it, I think it opens us up in ways that we are accustomed to closing ourselves down. Um, so I think you, you have the opportunity in seeing um, nonverbal theater or physical theater, you have an opportunity to take it in in ways other than your cognitive senses or uh, the way that we kind of use filters in our daily lives. So I think that's exciting. And also for a lot of people, it's terrifying because it's, it puts you in a vulnerable place if you want, if you allow it. Um, that's the main experience I've had as a performer going around the world is that's one thing audiences always come to express to me after the show is that they had no idea they were going to feel so much, you know, lots of, lots of tears and lots of, um, needing to tell me a story after I've told stories in my show, there's a, there's an opening up that seems to happen. Uh, and I think this is, uh, this is exactly why I want to be doing it. I want to maintain the art form and pass the art form on, but also to remind us all that there is power in silence and it's an opportunity to kind of meet ourselves where we really are. Yeah, absolutely. And do you believe that it's for these reasons why the work that you do resonates so much on uh, international level because you've had the opportunity to really travel all over the world to perform. And, and I, I guess at surface level, someone could say like, Oh, well, yeah, he doesn't talk much. So doesn't <laughs> need to worry about like the language barrier and things like that. Yeah. But do, do you believe it is this, this sense of feeling that people get from watching the performance? Why it, you know, your work, works so well on an international level? Well, I think that is a, a part of it. And I think that's how I kind of got um, a toehold into working internationally is that people saw that I was a mime. And so that that's what kind of invited 
that's what first got me invited. But I should also say that most of my work now involves spoken word and involves um, other ways of communicating besides just classical pantomime. So um, I think I, I tend to, in my shows, start silently and use that as a as a means of uh, getting people to uh, start to use their imagination and start to participate as theater goers. And then I also have added in, in my work, uh, I write very autobiographically and um, very honestly. And I think that uh, opens people up as well. I think that's been a part of the reason I've been able to perform so much around the world is that I think that honesty is very appealing. <laughs> Truthfulness <laughs> yeah. is yeah. truth. True stories are very uh, interesting to people. And I think the my if I've had any levels of, of success, it's been to work at being as specific and honest as I can be in a theatrical sense. And that has brought about uh, a universality that, uh, I mean, I had no idea I would have been traveling. For, I mean, I had no idea I was going to be doing my shows all over the world and for 20 years, you know, thus far. So something about that, um, that style of storytelling is, um, is, com is compelling to people. For a lot of the places that I play as well, it's a new kind of theater for, I had a really interesting experience in Warsaw a number of years ago where I did um, a, a, an autobiographical play and the audience was, it was a really strange evening for me. The audience was a little bit, well, quite reserved actually. And uh, it just felt like the show was, you know, like not connecting. And then I found out later after the show that people had just never seen anybody come on stage and talk about themselves. Wow. It's just not part of the culture and not part of the, the, the aesthetic in huh. Polish theater necessarily. I'm also, I write, because I write autobiographically, I talk a lot about being a gay person and I tell a lot of stories about that. And they're, I'm very drawn to taking those stories of my uh, experiences as a gay person and taking them to places where that's a hard conversation. And Poland was certainly one of those places where it's... Um, it's not talked about publicly very much. And so it's an uncomfortable space that I am more and more attracted to as a performer. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure it's, and it really is inspiring just all the work that you've created and the fact that it is, it really is drawing people in at, at, a, at a wide capacity on an international level. And I'm a true believer that theater really brings us together or at least allows us to think and contemplate together. Yeah. And it sounds like your work is doing a lot of that. So, so it, so thank you. <laughs> well, I hope so. It feels, I, I do feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is a nice feeling to have, you know, uh, I feel like the work that I'm doing is, is what I should be doing right now. In places, I think, too, where, you know, it's it the world is so interesting right now because we have, you know, the Internet. We have, you know, this access globally uh, to all kinds of information, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of people. But there are still so many places where, for example, homosexuality is 
if not illegal, it's, uh, it's um, hidden or closeted or not discussed. So I feel like I'm kind of trying to find the space in between those worlds to be like, to be uh, an actual voice and face of someone who is a gay man making my way through the world and being an artist and expressing who I am so that it, I'm hoping that it just gives a human face to that experience. Um, anyway, that's my hope. Yeah, absolutely. And Bill, you've also had the opportunity to work with children and at elementary schools. And I'm very curious how, you know, some, you know, the, how the little ones, I guess you could say, how they respond to the work that you do, how they respond to physical storytelling yeah. and why you might believe this art form is very effective for children. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a classic example. This just happened a few days ago. I've, um, for the past probably 25 years, I've worked for the, I, I go into New York public libraries, into branch libraries all around the five boroughs of, of New York City. And it's been an amazing experience because you go into these little tiny neighborhoods, well, not tiny neighborhoods, but little tiny libraries and neighborhoods all over, all over five boroughs. And I never know who's going to be there. That's kind of like an after school program. And the other day I went way out on Coney Island and I went into the library. It was a rainy, rainy day. The library was very empty. And for my uh, mime workshop, there was a, a woman from Russia uh, in her, uh, I, I'm not Russia, sorry. She was from uh, Ukraine. She was about 80 years old, didn't speak English. She was there. There was um, a Latino uh, uh, girl and her mother uh, who the mother didn't speak English. There was a Chinese, el an elderly Chinese woman sitting there waiting for the show. And then a mom with um, a baby in her arm, baby in her arms, and then two little children, like a toddler and one a little bit older than that. So that was my group. And none of them knew what mime was, but huh. all of them were doing it in trying in, you know, in communicating with each other and with me. Everybody was, you know, using this, uh, this first language we all have, which is nonverbal. And it was one of the great workshops I've ever given because everybody kind of came to this common ground of gesture and uh, the desire to connect with each other and to express. And it happened through using their bodies. So that's that's why i want to be doing this is to remind us that we all have a common language and also that there is this ancient art form that is absolutely about that about finding a way to communicate beyond the spoken word and i'm sure it's fascinating in those situations you know you know like what you were just talking about to have an audience of people from so many different backgrounds, but then have the opportunity to be able to connect and relate to one another in that yeah. setting. Yeah. 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 It was fantastic. But yeah. And I do work with a lot of kids. I have a show tomorrow in New Jersey uh, for kindergarten to fourth graders. And it's just such a great audience because they are still very willing to imagine, you know, they're very willing to just take the ride with you. 
And uh, I love that kind of audience where they they haven't they haven't grown up yet. I'm putting that in air quotes. Right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're still very willing to just play with you and go to this imaginary place. Do you ever run into situations performing for adults where they're very skeptical, like where they're like kind of hesitant. Maybe they have their arms crossed like, oh, I, I don't know about this kind of stuff. Like, have you ever oh, run yeah. into that oh, situation? Yeah. And if so, oh, if, lots of times, if so, yeah. like, how do you approach that? Yeah, well, I kind of like that. And that's that's kind of where I start with most of my shows is to I start almost always in silence and I start kind of introducing that I'm a mime and I know that people have, you know, connotations of mime and opinions about mime. And um, I like to kind of play into that. Like, like I always like, oh, my gosh, I I want it like the audience to think, oh, my God, I've been trapped. I'm stuck in a mime show. Tonight. <laughs> um, yeah. So I like to play with that kind of fear <laughs> and then break that. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of how I how I include spoken word is to kind of break the the language and talk to people. And then I go back and forth between using mime and using spoken word. And I feel like, uh, I hope what I'm doing is helping people see mime in a new way, if they had opinions about it before, and also introducing it to those who have never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I'm sure it, this, this work resonates with people at a whole wide variety of different levels. And I'm curious as to this this work that you do, the, the work that you've really created on your own, whether it be mime, pantomime, uh, spoken word work that you've done. Is your process in, uh, of course, you have to develop this work, but is your approach to this work approached differently than the work that you've done, say, on, on Broadway or in more traditional environments? Yeah. Well, I am, it's different in the sense that I'm the, I'm the creator and also the performer. And a lot of times I'm, yeah, I have my fingers in the design element too. So I'm certainly more <clears throat> in charge of the, the creative process, you know, working on Broadway, which was an amazing experience is, you know, you're really serving someone else's vision. You're part of, you're part of making a piece of theater happen, but it's not necessarily your creative input. I mean, hopefully on some level it is, but you're really there to help move another, another artist's vision forward. And that's one thing I've learned to love is that I can make, I can do that for myself too. Uh, so I have, um, uh, I generally think about when I'm working on a new piece, I'm usually looking for the question I want to answer. That's how I kind of begin my process. Like, what is the question that that is kind of burning in me and how can I begin to answer it? The, a good example is the show that I've done the most around the world is a, a play called It Goes Without Saying, which is the story of why I became a mime. And I just actually just start with that question. Why am I a mime? And I use uh, all true stories from my life and also a lot of physical uh, storytelling to just look at the, the experiences of my life that led me toward this art form uh, 
And a lot of it has to do with silence and how silence informs really all of us in, in, in positive ways and, and in not so positive ways. Right. Right. Absolutely. And do you believe, or rather, I guess I should ask, how do you think that theater as well as physical storytelling can empower us today? Well, um, I always go back to, <laughs> not to be like, like a boring mime nerd, but when you look at the word mime, the, it is the oldest art form. And the original word for mime was a, a Greco-Latin word, mimos, M-I-M-O-S. And the original idea of mimos, uh, the word mimos means reflection, to be a reflection of, to mirror what you see. And I think I, I also kind of start with that basic uh, idea that I, as an artist, as a mime, have this opportunity to look at the world and, and be a reflection of it, not only to replicate things and create ropes that look like ropes and <laughs> walls that look like walls, but also to look at the world and have a, a point of view about it and to have a response to it in an, um, uh, in an artistic way. So I feel like that's what theater has always been and will always be is the, is the opportunity to respond to what's going on in the world. And, and theater is the most live art in that sense. Well, I mean, I'm including all kinds of performing arts. Performing arts are living arts. They're happening right now. And I think that's the advantage we have as, as performing artists. Yes, it's absolutely true. And I feel like even though theater has been around for like forever or for thousands and thousands of yeah, years, yeah. I, I feel that it's only becoming more and more important. I think, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so earlier we had talked about how, uh, you know, this connection between the audience and the performer and the magic of that space in between. <clears throat> and really that connection that's established, you know, we, we've talked a lot about connection and so I'm curious as to uh -huh. how do how do you believe that we can if at all if this is possible if how do you believe that we can replicate that in our own lives between the relationships that we have with one another? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Well, I think uh, I, I I'm just going back to an expression I I've heard before where you know we were given. Uh, two ears but one mouth so I think it begins by by silence I, I think it begins by sitting in silence and listening listening first of all to yourself like what do you need what do you feel and then really uh, listening with as much intention as most of us talk you know I think I think, uh, and I'm speaking for myself too, about myself, that I think more and more, even in the past year, it's become harder and harder to really listen to people, especially people that you may not agree with. It gets, things have gotten very uh, divided. And I think this is the time to, to really uh, offer people a space to sit and listen 
and not just think about their, uh, not to be reactionary, to be just receivers of information. And then hopefully that allows conversation to happen. But I think it has to start with actually sitting and being a listener. Yeah, it's important that we constantly remind ourselves of that because it is very easy to react to what people are saying, especially people yeah. who you may disagree with and who may have opinions that are completely different from your own, but really taking that time to yeah. reflect on what's being said and to receive information. It's, it's really crucial. That's been my like great um, experience of being able to travel around to, I've been to, I think 30, this year will be 38 countries that I've oh performed my in. Gosh. Well, and the, and the and, year's not even close to being over yet. I know. Uh, <laughs> but the main thing that I've taken away from that is people aren't as complicated as we think. That there really is, I think, people basically want to be kind. And I think people uh, basically want to uh, be welcoming and and make connections. And I think theater is really a place where we can uh, support that. I absolutely agree with that. <laughs> so true. Um, well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. Uh, before we head on out, I was wondering if you could just share with our listeners um, maybe some ways that they could go about finding out more about you and your work. Oh, thank you. Well, I am um, like everybody now. I have a website and uh, my website is my name. It's Bill hyphen Bowers, B-O-W-E-R-S. So Bill-Bowers.com. And I have my schedule up there. I am performing in the city this summer a couple times and this fall and uh, on the road for a couple dates this summer. So you can check that out. Um, I'm also working on a new piece that will have a premiere um, in New York uh, in just about a year from now. I'm just starting. Actually, I start rehearsal next week for it. Um, oh, nice. And I'm actually writing a new piece and I'm going to take sound away. I'm going to do a completely silent piece or that's my goal anyway. Wow. So I'm, uh, oh, my I'm gosh. heading back to this to the source. <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited to get going on it. Great. Well, we'll definitely encourage our listeners to, to check you out and, and visit your website and see all the great work that you're doing. So, Bill, thank you so much again. It was, it was really great chatting with you. Thank you so much, Pat. It was so great having Bill Bowers on the Ships podcast today. There were a lot of great nuggets of wisdom in there that I hope you could implement into your daily lives, whether you're a theater person or not. So thank you, Bill. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends, leave a comment, leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to leave me a voicemail with the possibility that said voicemail might be published in a future episode. Also, you have the opportunity to support this podcast. Supporting this podcast will allow me to continue making episodes with inspiring and incredible guests. 
So very many thanks to Bill Bowers for joining us on episode 15 of Ships, and I'll catch you all in the next one.